Welcome to the Drive Like a Mother podcast. I am your host, Ivy Harris. Today, we have my dear friend, Lonnie Phillips-Tab, here with us on the podcast. And we're going to be talking about biostatistics, what that means for COVID-19, what that means for our health. Um, and, you know, she is Dr. Lonnie Phillips-Tab for, you know, my bad for missing that. You know, she has been, been with Drexel for a number of, number of years. Uh, she conducts research, and I just wanted to talk to her about, you know, all things related to biostatistics and what that means for our health. So with no further ado, please welcome our guest, Lonnie, Dr. Lonnie Phillips-Tab to the Drive Like a Mother podcast. Yay! Thank you, Ivy. Thank you. It's great to be here. Listen, you are serious. You got, you got your headphones <laughs> with your speaker piece. I need that in my life. Can you tell me where you got that? That's my drop like a mother mom pick. Oh, well, before COVID struck, I knew that I needed to kind of up my, up my game, especially with the online teaching that I had to convert to. So, yeah. but Amazon. <laughs> I love it. That is great. Um, for those of you who are listening, it like it makes her voice sound clearer. You know, it makes me feel like she's like right here. So uh, I, I really I'm digging those. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Lonnie, can you tell us what's your current role at Drexel University? Sure. So I am currently an associate professor of biostatistics at Drexel. And I am within the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and it's within the Dornsife School of Public Health. I've been at the university for 10 years now. That's a long time. So you're a tenured professor. Yes. Which is fantastic. And I, I love that, you know, you're, I mean, how many, how many minority professors are there in your department? How many minority professors? So the School of Public Health, let me just kind of set the stage. It's probably the most diverse unit at the university. So in the School of Public Health, we have four different departments. My department, Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. We also have Community Health and Prevention. We have environmental health. And then the fourth department is health management and policy. So it really is a diverse school. Um, and I do think that at the university level, they kind of shine a light on that because they'd like for that to perpetuate throughout all of the different units, whether it's in the business school, the engineering school. And my department, there are about, I would say about 20% that are minority. Mm -hmm. um, and that says a lot because in departments of epidemiology or biostatistics, um, oftentimes it is heavily dominated by white men. And so um, for, for a department like mine, roughly hovering around 20 to 30%, um, that's actually pretty, that's pretty good. And I'm talking about, you know, looking at people of color. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I didn't expect you to say that, but that's fantastic because, um, you know, with even with like the health crises, like, you know, there are, there, there, I feel like African-Americans especially um, are getting more sick or they're diagnosed, you know, more with underlying conditions um, than any other population. And, um, and I feel like if we are able to study that for our people, 
then we can put out more information to help save lives. So I, I love that you're, you're in this position. You, you know, you, you do, you do research, you know, you put out really good information all the time. So I can't tell you how thankful it is to have you as a friend also, um, because you Thank always you. keep us up to date with, you know, um, the COVID-19 information and making sure we understand how this thing is being spread and what to look out for, especially for our, uh, for our parents and our grandparents too, especially yes. with those, you know, um, how it relates to the heart and stuff. But we'll get into that a little bit later okay. in the podcast episode. So um, what is the field of biostatistics and how did you become interested in it? Sure. So biostatistics is the field of science that it uses math and statistics to help understand various health challenges. And those health challenges are usually within the field of public health or medicine and biology. So when I was an undergraduate student at Drexel, I initially majored in business. Um, however, <laughs> yeah, however, during my very first co-op experience, and my co-op experience, I actually interned at the Vanguard Group, which is a mutual fund company in Pennsylvania. Right. And so it was actually during that time that I trained and I was learning the ins and outs about mutual funds, but, and it was interesting, but it didn't really resonate with me, right? Like it didn't seem like something that I really was passionate about. So after my first co-op experience, I switched my major to math because I did notice during that internship that I had really strong quantitative skills. Mm. And so as I learned more and more about math theory and how math can be applied in a lot of different ways, I started to become even more interested in the field, right? And so I graduated from the undergraduate program there at Drexel, and then I went right into a master's program, but again, specifically just for math. And it was during that time where I took um, an independent level course where it introduced me to biostatistics and how biostatisticians are often trained as mathematicians, but they're trained in a way where they have a really keen eye at applying their math skills and not necessarily on the more abstract side of math, but more on the applied side of math. And so that's when I first learned about biostatistics. And so during my second year in that master's program, I applied to a number of different PhD programs in biostatistics, and I ultimately was accepted into Harvard's program. So that's why I decided to go and obtain my training, and I finished there in 2009. And we celebrated, didn't we? We sure did. Yay! I was so excited. Like on two fronts, I had a doctor friend and she graduated from Harvard. We, it's, it's a celebration. All graduated from Harvard. Right, right. Girl, we graduated. We graduated. We did it. Can I tell you, I failed bios, I failed statistics <laughs> at least twice. Like Old Dominion probably got $3,000 off of me uh. for statistics. Trust me, though. It, I mean, I'm sure that certain things resonated with you, and I'm sure you stored a couple of nuggets, like a squirrel. Did, did I? I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. You know what? It, yes. The, the um, what is it called? Uh, the quantitative, um, uh, what do you call it? You know, when they, when they, when the math problem that talks about probability. 
Uh That's the part that really stuck Uh with me, probability. Uh Uh The odds of something occurring. Correct. What's the risk? What's the risk associated? If you do X, Y, and Z, what's the risk that something will occur? Yeah. Yep. That's what stuck with me the most. Resonated with you. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. It's back here. Back in the cerebellum. All right. So how does biostatistics play a role in dealing with the most recent coronavirus pandemic? So that's a really good question. Um, And it's a really important one. So biostatisticians have a pretty vital role in dealing with pandemics and most recently the coronavirus pandemic. So I'll give you an example. So the vaccines that many different researchers are actually working on right now, they rely on statistical methods to allow them to actually have faith in knowing that the drug that they're using to serve as this vaccine will actually work. It will actually do what it's intended to do. And so another way, another example of why biostatisticians are really important in trying to understand the clinical and the social impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, it deals with, say, looking at even the racial and ethnic disparities that we've been seeing, right? Um, I'm currently working on research to speak to or at least provide the rigorous evidence that people are kind of already aware of, but in a very anecdotal manner. So like right now in the media, whether you read the New York Times or you read the Washington Post, or even if you're on the gram, right, you'll notice that over the past month, month and a half, there have been staggering statistics that show the disproportionate impact, right, of the coronavirus pandemic on black and brown communities. So a couple of, you know, quick statistics to kind of think about, right? So back in mid-April, right, there was a huge push, um, especially from, you know, people like us on the ground where we're experiencing firsthand, whether you may know someone or know someone who knows someone who's impacted by this virus, um, you know, the the implications of it. Um, But unfortunately, at the top the federal level, um, there hasn't been really a push to kind of give out information as it applies to someone's race, their ethnicity, and whether or not they're actually, they have contracted the disease or unfortunately died from the disease. But what has been given out are statistics at the state level. So for instance, you know, back in mid-April around there, only about 30 of the states actually released Um, data as it applied to race ethnicity. So you'll have states like Illinois, Chicago, Missouri, and unfortunately those states, they show pretty staggering statistics where the COVID-related fatalities for Blacks, they were twice as high when you start looking at what they make up in terms of their total population in those states. Mm -hmm. So you know, biostatisticians are really, really important in trying to make a crystal clear understanding of what those numbers mean and to kind of move beyond, well, are we thinking that this is actually a phenomenon or is it just by happen chance? And so that's where biostatisticians come into play. Right. And, you know, I think my biggest takeaway is, you know, especially in the, in, in lower economic communities, I feel like because they live in intergenerational homes, is spreading faster in our communities as well. Are you seeing that? 
So unfortunately, I'm not able to, in the research that I deal with, mm-hmm. I'm not able to, to tease apart that intergenerational, right? Mm-hmm. So some of the research, and, and this kind of speaks to the data, like what we can actually get our hands on. Um, so the research that I'm working on right now, I'm able to get my hands on the total number of cases at the county level across all of the entire U.S. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to then look at, in a given county, the number of cases, the number of deaths. But because I don't have individual information for those cases and deaths, I have to make use of, say, census data with respect to how old people are in those counties, what their race or ethnicity looks like in those counties, um, what the income levels look like in those counties. And I use that county level to be able to look at those disparities, but unfortunately I'm not able to, to get down to a more granular level. Mm, Okay. I understand that. So what are some of the key takeaways um, from the research that you engage in? So some of the key takeaways um, of, of what I'm involved in right now, it really does shine a light on how if we just look at health, right? Um, I know that a focus right now is on the coronavirus, but if we just look at overall health and we only laser in on what makes up individuals or whether or not, you know, whatever the things that they do at the individual level predicts their health, we're missing a complete picture because people live in certain environments. People work they play, they research, they learn, they worship in a lot of different types of neighborhoods and neighborhoods matter. And so if we ignore that and only focus on, for example, if you only focus on an individual's high blood pressure, right? You're going to actually miss the true reason as to why they have high blood pressure in the first place. The reason why people might have high blood pressure in the first place, especially within the black community, think about where they live. Think about their daily experiences. They live in a country where systemic racism runs rampant. Mm -hmm. They drive every day wondering if they will be pulled over and make it home to their loved ones alive. They work in an office where they are often overlooked, you know, for particular promotions based on the color of their skin. They are raising little black boys that at some point turn from, you know, that sweet, innocent, oh, he's so cute, to now threatening and fearing. Mm. And it's usually before the age of 10, right? Like it's really young. Um, That's why their blood pressure is so high, right? It's not just because of, you know, say their food choices, um, but we can't ignore that. I think that's some of the biggest takeaways with the research that I do. I often look at that intersection between health and place and also time. Because you have to look at how people are coping with things over time. Yes. Yep. And not to mention the food deserts, you know, in some areas. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, you know, we, we resort to what's, what's efficient, time efficient, you know, mm-hmm. what's energy efficient. And if you're, and you know, if you're a mom of two or three or whatever, you know, this is, it's not easy to, you know, juggle everything and put food on the table every night. So, you know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, this is, it's so deep. It's so much deeper than just the one thing. Right. Yeah. Right. So what can we learn about the pandemic moving forward? You know, um, you know, how, how to navigate, navigate this and be more aware of, um, of the, of the pandemic. I mean, of course, we're here. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. 
but how can what what can we learn about the pandemic moving forward well i think we really do need to step back for a moment and think about you know overall health the reason why um, we're seeing so many of these cases and unfortunately people dying from this virus um, not just because of the systemic racism that you know permeates through health systems permeates through you know employer and employment relations um, but if you if you look at overall health in this country one way that we can combat our risk factors for um, if we were to become exposed to something like the coronavirus um, so as to kind of head off really bad complications, we really do need to think about our overall health. We need to think about our heart. Um, and the reason why I say our heart is because a lot of the research that I that I do, it deals with cardiovascular health. Mm-hmm. Cardiovascular disease is one of the number one killers in this country. And unfortunately for Blacks, um, it is really at the top of the list. And so the American Heart Association, a couple years ago, they came out with this campaign. um, And the campaign focused on improving um, overall cardiovascular health in this country. And it's called Life Simple 7. And so... I'm going to put that in the show notes. Life Simple 7. Life Simple 7. And it is seven ways to ensure you actually improve your cardiovascular health. And again, the reason why I'm focusing on cardiovascular health, even though you asked me about coronavirus, because if your cardiovascular health is solid, even if you contract the disease, contract COVID, um, the coronavirus itself, you'll be stronger to actually combat it. And your complications may not be as, uh, as great. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing out of the seven is to manage your blood pressure. The second thing is to control your cholesterol. The third thing is to reduce your blood pressure. And then the fourth thing is to move, get physically active, move every single day, even if it's for 15 minutes. The fifth is to eat better and to make better choices, but also realizing that that is not as easy for everyone depending on the neighborhoods that you live in, right? The sixth is to lose weight if you are overweight or if you are obese. And then the seventh thing is to stop smoking if you're a current smoker. So if you take small steps every day and try and target, say, these different areas, Um, and stay motivated to live a healthier life, then you can reduce your overall risk of, say, having heart disease and then ultimately being at risk for, you know, greater complications for the coronavirus. These are fantastic tips. I'm putting those in my show notes as well. Those were great. I love that. Like, you know, I try to move every day, you know, I get out there and I walk four miles, Uh, you know, well, this is to lose the baby weight, but, you know, it'll... (laughs) You know, it's a win-win. Just, it's a exactly. win-win. Just by chance, it's also improving my cardiovascular health. It is. It is. And it's slimming down my backside. Yes. It's you a know? twofer. Yes. A, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It sounds like a fourfer. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. So how long do you think we're going to be in quarantine? Oh, that's a hard question, Ivy. Um, but it's a good one. I mean, I think 
now that restrictions are being lifted and there are different phases, you know, for opening up, we actually still have to play the wait and see game, right? We have to wait and see if we have potential spikes in cases and unfortunately deaths too, they might ensue, right? Now that we have these new openings. But if, if folks are being conscious and making a conscious effort to practice social distancing, um, continuing to practice safe hygiene and make sensible choices, then we could see a decrease, right? A decrease in the amount of cases and deaths. But I think that normalcy that we all crave, like the normalcy that existed like back before March, um, is no longer. I mean, I think we need to be realistic about how this virus has you know, globally impacted the way we socialize, the way we live, the way we learn, work, play. And in the coming months, we're, we're going to have to alter course a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I also think that this is a really good opportunity for us to think about overall health um, and how to make sound decisions to increase the likelihood so that we live long and healthy lives. Yeah, it's so true. So it sounds like, you know, health is a new credit. You gotta get exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is serious. Right? Get serious. active, drink more water, make good healthy food choices when possible. Like yeah. it's multi-pronged, multifaceted, but it's definitely, it's definitely it's doable. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have to recognize that in certain environments for certain groups, um, especially within black and brown communities, it's not as easy. Yeah, because we, I mean, you know, of course, COVID-19 is right here, but we don't, we don't know what's coming down the pipeline next, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. Um, what are some safe ways to have fun with our families this summer? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think that, and, and, and I'm thinking, you know, like a parent, right? My, my husband and I, we have two school-age children, and they were scheduled to be in summer camp. You know, however, due to the virus, that is not going to be the case. And we're deciding to keep them home. Yeah. And so we intend to take advantage of local walking trails, doing bike rides, you know, and even practicing social distancing, but then interacting with close friends and family um, in a very safe way. So think barbecues, right? But think BYO everything. Bring your own chair or bring your own utensils, bring your own food. Yep. But the thing is, we are still in somewhat of a common space. Um, I do think that it's ideal to be in an outdoor space so that you can still limit the potential transmission mm-hmm. um, in case someone is a carrier. And I think the good thing is, is that in the coming weeks, I know in my county, um, you know, there are pop-up sites where folks can go to get tested. And those sites are specific to people who do not have symptoms, which is key because we know that the way that this virus transmits, it's also through not, you know, non-asymptomatic people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I do think that folks should consider testing And with some of the testing opportunities that are available now, I know that folks are used to seeing the actual Q-tip swab that goes inside the nose cavity, but the the new tests that are being widely used are um, a swab of the mouth. And so if you think, you know, that you want to get yourself tested and say even your children tested, even though they are um, not showing symptoms, um, that could be... Um, a, a possible way for you to do that. 
Yes. And especially wanting to visit the elderly, you know, like your grandparents and your great aunties or your aunts, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think that's a great way, great way to ensure that you're not passing, you know, this, the, the COVID-19 along to the people that you care about. So mm-hmm. um, I'm going to take you up on that and get myself and, you know, my family, my family tested. It's, that's really important. Yes. Um, so, you know, to, to round us out, I always have to ask my moms because this is drive like a mother. So there's a double entendre there. <laughs> I have to ask my moms what their ultimate dream car is. Oh, Ivy. Um, so that's a really hard question for me because I'm not a car person. Um, but it's stylish though. Like I love your car. (laughs) So, but I will say this, you know, if I had to pick like my dream mode of transportation, um, it would actually be a plane right about now because I wish that I were on the shores of either St. Vincent and the Grenadines. That's where my mom is from, um, or Grenada, because this summer, my family, including my parents, we were scheduled to be there in July. We were scheduled to visit both islands and I was supposed to present at the medical school in Grenada, St. George's university, but that will have to wait. That's a perk too. To be able to travel and do research, that's beautiful Mm -hmm. because then your family gets the benefit. But geez, I know it's like, oh my gosh, how long are we not going to be able to travel for? I know. You know? I know. It's definitely, um, it's trying times. Yeah. Um, But I have faith that, you know, things will, um, portions of what we we knew as normal um, will return. Um, but right now we are still reeling from, we're still in it. Mm-hmm. And so um, remember, you know, we've gone through various pandemics, right? The Spanish flu, we've gone through a lot of um, public health crises. Um, so it's just a matter of us, you know, making sound decisions um, and, and learning while we're still in it. Yeah. I was talking to my mom yesterday and she reminded me, I mean, of course we weren't around, but in the seventies, something, there was another pandemic where the children had to get inoculated in their arms. In their arms. Right. And I forget what that, um, what that illness was, but I remember her mentioning something. And I'm like, you're right. Cause I always wondered what that, what that round circle uh, thing was right. on people, her age's arms. Right. I mean, and it does, it reminds me too that, um, you know, we're in this right now and I know that people are yearning um, for a vaccine. Um, And I know that people have very strong feelings on either side of vaccines, um, but I definitely urge people to stay informed um, and know that you know, a vaccine and the process that comes with vaccines, they are not to be rushed. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a reason why, you know, when COVID first hit that, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci and other health professionals, um, they, they touted this one, one and a half year lag of us being able to land on a vaccine. And that's because you're, you're moving literally from having the virus putting it in animals, going through different clinical trials, 
using healthy individuals that are volunteering to be a part of these clinical trials, um, it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to rush that process. Um, and you also want to make sure that we know when we're looking at findings from these different clinical trials that who they're testing on looks like us as well. That's the right? truth. Historically, that- drugs that are out on the market are not always representative of the black and brown um, folks that live here in this country. Well, and I don't so- think we're going to volunteer either. Well- but it's true. Somebody got to get tested. I mean, so I, I'm just saying we have to we have to keep that in mind because if you want to know how certain drugs um, are, whether they're effective or not, you need to test it on a diverse set of individuals. Yes, and so um, we have to keep that in mind. Yeah, we have to keep that in mind. I mean, I know this isn't the same thing, but like even with this whole air fryer sitch, like I, I can't jump on the air fryer bandwagon yet because I, I don't know enough information about it. It makes me feel like it's the microwave. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't use the microwave, so. Right, right. You know, I, gotta, right. I, I need more data. I need more. Statistics. Yeah, you, you, right, right. And you need to be more informed, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, all of these things, you know, we have to pay attention. That's, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, we, like yeah. you said, like we have to pay attention to how these things affect us, meaning exactly. brown and black, you know, Americans, people in general, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for no, this information. I'm going to put all of your tips on the <laughs> Job Like a Mother podcast show notes because there's a lot of information for moms to have. Um, and, and I really, really appreciate your knowledge, your wisdom, and your time today because we, we need to understand more about what's going on. And, you know, this is a sad, this is a sad time, you know. Yeah. So to be yeah. able to shine light on our minority moms who are out here killing it every day for, our, for, for their families, this brings me joy. No, thank you for for taking the opportunity to sit down with me. This has been great, um, and and it really has been therapeutic for me too. We've talked about this because, you know, right now the country is is in pain, and specifically, um, we as Black people, we are in pain right now. So, yeah. um, but it's important to get this information out there, just like you said. It's important to have this dialogue and to, you know, make sure that people have a good understanding of, of, of what's going on. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you so much, Dr. Lonnie Phillip-Tab. I appreciate you and I love you. Thank you. I love you too, Ivy.